Amen and good morning to you. It's good to see everyone here. And it is a good thing. It's his breath in our lungs or we'd all be out of breath after that. Praise the Lord. So Galatians chapter 1 this morning, we'll go through the second half of the chapter. I think it's important for believers in Christ that have a testimony, of course, because everyone who is a believer in Christ has a testimony, that we all need to learn to give that testimony. We need to be able to tell people a little bit about our past, that is, what we used to be like before we came to God, and then to be able to tell people a little bit about how we've changed once we came to know God. After all, it would seem that that is the very best way, I think, probably more often than not, to try and share with people that don't know God is to just use your testimony, what God has used in your own life. Much more effective than any kind of an intellectual argument, and I should know because I spent most of my early years walking with God learning all the intellectual arguments. And the thing that I found is people don't like to be told that everything they have believed up until now has been wrong. They don't like what they believe to be undermined by someone else. What they want to know in talking to you about God is, you know, how God has changed your life and how they might have hope accordingly because of talking to you and hearing about that. So I would give you just a couple tips in sharing your faith. Number one, keep it simple. You know, don't speak in Christianese. Right? When you talk about propitiation and hermeneutics and eschatology, they don't know what you're talking about more often than not. So keep it simple. Secondly, be humble. Because the testimony is about what God has done in you, not what you have done. And oftentimes a testimony sounds like what I've done instead of what God's done through me. Okay? And then finally, keep it short. <laughs> And the Apostle Paul is going to model that for us. He's going to go through double-digit years of his testimony in like 13 verses this morning. It's pretty neat. In fact, that is what we're going to look at today, sort of a mini sketch of his autobiography. That is, in coming to Jesus Christ, you have to know, if you don't already by now, that before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And, well, he was like the Antichrist of the day at the time. He was the biggest threat to the Christian church that there was going. In Acts 26, he, in his own words, describes how he hauled off Christians to prison. He cast his vote with those that were put on trial before the Sanhedrin that they would be put to death. And then even worst of all, and this is something I can't even imagine that the Apostle Paul had to live with after he came to Christ, which was, well, he says that he compelled believers at the threat of the sword to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine that just years later, the mental images that would have been in the Apostle Paul's mind as he, with the threat of the sword, would have forced someone to blaspheme Jesus Christ that loved Jesus Christ. So he was, well, to say the least, an enemy of the church, but he was also an enemy of Jesus Christ. You remember when he is confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because if you persecute the church of God, you're persecuting Jesus Christ. So here's his resume before Christ. He persecutes the church. He consents to the death of Stephen and no doubt other Christians. He's got blood on his hands. He has caused people to blaspheme the name 
of Jesus Christ. He is the greatest persecutor of the church and of Jesus Christ up until that point that there was. And what that tells me, by the way, is there shouldn't be anyone in your life that you think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to stop praying for this person. There shouldn't be anyone like that. If they're still breathing in and out, then like Saul of Tarsus, there's still hope for them to come to Jesus Christ and we can't stop praying for them. If you're here this morning, by the way, no one's going to be able that's here to convince me that you're beyond God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. You just can't convince me of that. You can come up and say, but pastor, you have no idea what I've done. And you start to tell me and I'm like, oh, wow, really? Oh, maybe you are beyond hope. No, I'm not going to say that. Because I'm going to know that God's grace, if it's good enough for Paul, I mean, did you consent to the death of Christians? Did you cause Christians to blaspheme the name? Do you have blood on your hands? And even if you have been guilty of anything like that at all, then you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. Which means, by the way, that it doesn't matter what you've done up until this point right now, because of here in this book of Galatians, what we're looking at, and I hope you don't get tired of the gospel ever, because we're going to be in discussion about the gospel as long as we're in the book of Galatians here, the next several weeks. I never get tired of the gospel. The gospel is the glory of God. And the gospel is a salvation by grace through a simple faith in Jesus Christ, which means it doesn't matter how bad you've been up until now. It also doesn't matter how good you think you've been up until now. You haven't been good, but just in case you think you've been good, and I'm not picking on you because we're all in the same category, we're all in the same boat this morning. It doesn't matter how religious you are or think you've been up until this point. You know, Saul of Tarsus was very religious, was he not? This was a guy who was raised in a privileged family that could afford to send him off to the best seminary in Israel. He was taught by Gamaliel. He was at a very young age, a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the most religious guys in the world and the most religious country in the world. So he prayed the prayers. He wore the fancy robes. He performed the rituals and the ceremonies. And yet for all of his religion, for all of his religiosity, Saul of Tarsus found himself as the enemy of grace. So that's what his religion brought him to. It brought him to a place where he was the enemy of God's grace, to the only thing that can relink, that's what religion means, people back to God, God's grace. Paul found himself an enemy of that. And that's why here in verses 11 through 24, he's so passionate about the gospel. He's so protective of those he once persecuted here in this text by exhorting them concerning the change that God has made in his own life and the simple faith in a simple gospel. That's why he reacted last time in verses 6 and 7. I'll read again for you. But it sort of sets the stage for the whole book. When he said, I marveled, speaking to those there in the region of Galatia, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word pervert there means to distort. And the reason why that's important is because the Judaizers, you know, these were the people that come in after Paul, behind Paul, try to capitalize on Paul, what he had done, take advantage of the work that he had done in investing in the believers there in Galatia. They would come in and they would try and draw the attention to themselves by teaching their own version of the gospel. But here's the thing. 
They didn't come in and say, oh, salvation by grace through faith. That's way wrong. See, most of them would at least say that they believed in salvation by grace through faith. And that's the thing about false teachers, and you have to be careful. False teachers don't walk around with a name badge that says false teacher. They don't walk up to you and introduce themselves as a false teacher. Most of them probably don't know that they're a false teacher. And the Judaizers might have fallen into this trap. Well, we believe in salvation by grace through faith, but you got to make sure you follow the law of Moses. you got to make sure that you get circumcised. you got to make sure that you keep the traditions of the priests. you got to make sure that you honor the Sabbath and celebrate the festivals, all those kinds of things, etc., etc. But here's the problem. Salvation by grace through faith plus anything else is no longer salvation by grace through faith. You add anything to that, and it's not salvation by grace through faith. I think some people think that by adding a little bit to it, what they're doing is they're just covering their basis. They're just kind of hedging their bets. Like, well, I believe that we are saved by simple faith, but I'm going to do all these other things just in case. But when you do that, you're actually not covering your basis at all. Because what you're saying is that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't quite enough, so I'm going to do all these other things just in case. And now my faith isn't in that simple gospel any longer. Oftentimes I think the slightest variation from the gospel is the most dangerous variation. Like today, people will say it's salvation by grace through faith plus baptism. And where I believe that every believer, when they're born again, should be baptized, they should be baptized as an expression of the change that God has already done in them, giving them that rebirth, being born again, and I make a public testimony of that before people. Absolutely. But that is not, um, salvation by grace through faith doesn't include baptism. And once we do, even the slightest variation there makes it now a different gospel. If you say we must do anything other than to place our faith in Jesus Christ, that's no longer the gospel anymore. And if anyone ought to have known all about that, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Because you can tell in reading his writings in other places, after he's saved, in retrospect, he looks back, and here is a man who knew the law inside and out. He knew what it meant to be a Jew inside and out. And he looks back, and he looks at all of his experience and his expertise in the law and the prophets and in the Old Testament, and he would say, hey, there's no question about it. You can read it all day long, left to right, right to left, top to bottom, however you want to do it, there is no everlasting life found in the law. There's no salvation that's found in the law. And he, of all people, would have known that to be true. And so, as a result here, he lays out his case in the book of Galatians concerning a gospel that had been delivered directly to him. Verse 11, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's not of human origin. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It could never come from man in general, because man would never come up with a gospel that so devalues his or her pride. Every other religion in the world, you get to play like a role in your salvation, although you really don't, because there is no salvation there. But you get to play a role in that. But in Christianity, you don't. You don't get to be the savior. You don't get to be the hero. That's the way it goes as it relates to Christianity. Christ does the work. We just put our faith in him. But specifically, Paul is saying here in this verse that this was no man 
his idea. It wasn't Paul's idea either, for that matter. Paul would never have come up with a gospel like this. That's how we know he received this directly from Jesus Christ. He couldn't have come up with this on his own. He couldn't because of his background. We know what he had done all his life. We know what he was about all his life, his days before he came to Christ. He describes that here in this passage. He says, verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. And by the way, when people were around Paul long enough, they heard about his former conduct. And I think that as you go out into this world, and as you attempt to represent Christ, one of the things that people should know about you is your former conduct, your testimony, who you were, and then who you are now. And there should be some difference between the two so that people can give glory to God. That's the purpose of a testimony. Seems like Paul hanging around a group of people long enough, as it says there, you have heard my former conduct in Judaism. How, he says, he continues, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. So he's talking about who he was before he came to Jesus Christ. And we know that Saul of Tarsus was an expert in Judaism. Now, one thing that's interesting is in verses 13 to 14 there, the word Judaism is used twice. In the King James, if you have a King James here, that word Judaism is translated Jews' religion. I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit here twice differentiates himself from the Jews' religion. And you know why? Look what it says again at the end of verse 14, that he was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Because the Jews, just like some groups today, back in that day, some of the rabbis, some of the priests, had elevated the traditions to the word of God, making them equal to the word of God, when God had never given them permission to do that. So God had given him his law, and it was perfect, but they built upon the law. They added stipulations and extrapolation. To God's law. He had given them the sacrificial system, but they built upon the sacrificial system. So they had added all these rules and ceremonies and things that God had not given them. And there are people, there are groups that are doing the same thing today. They are adding to what God has given them. And the reason why, we talked briefly about this last week, but the reason why they think they have the authority to do that is because the traditions, they appeal as the basis of their authority to be able to uh, elevate traditions to the word of God, they appeal to tradition because the word of God never made provision for man to be able to elevate tradition to the word of God in any place. So whenever someone does elevate tradition, they're appealing to tradition as the basis of their authority for elevating tradition. But God never gave them the provision or the right to do that at all whatsoever. Paul would later find that out. But he was one that, along with his fellow contemporaries, he advanced, he advanced beyond many of them at the time. We know from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He was of the stock of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, right? He was the perfect pedigree is what he was saying. He was not simply someone who had taken a comparative religious course at UC Santa Cruz or Cabrillo College. He was a little bit further developed in that. He had grown up in this. He was raised in it. He was all about it. He excelled in it. If anyone knew about the law of Moses 
and circumcision and the traditions and all those things, it was the Apostle Paul. And I think it's important here to point out, and I'm sure that Paul would tell you, that when he was Saul of Tarsus, he was very sincere. He believed that what he was doing was right when he was persecuting the church of God. He really believed that. Which, by the way, just goes to show you that someone can be sincere and they can be sincerely wrong in what they believe. Every now and again, you'll run into someone who will say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, what if I sincerely disagree with that? Who's right, me or you? Because I do sincerely disagree with that. There are all kinds of people. Adolf Hitler, was he sincere? I think he was. Joseph Stalin, was he sincere? I think so. How about terrorists today? Are they sincere? Absolutely. ISIS? That's what they say is effective or dangerous about them. They're willing to die because they really believe in what they're fighting for. But that doesn't mean they're right. You can be sincere and you can be very confused and sincerely, sincerely wrong. You know, there are some religions, there are plenty of religions where I wish we would almost pattern ourselves only in their sincerity. That God would light a fire under us and we would say, wow, look how sincere they are about a lie. How much more so should we be sincere about the truth? Because Paul knew, I mean, he was radical for a lie. Now, he would also be radical for the truth, but he spoke in a other place about having a zeal, but not according to knowledge, because you can really believe what you think you believe, but you can be wrong. And that was, you know, Saul of Tarsus before he came to know Jesus Christ. But, verse 15, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace... What he's saying there is that his calling happened way back from before he was born. Not when he came to Christ. He didn't come to Christ and then God said, well, I think I'm going to call Saul of Tarsus to the ministry. No, it goes back all the way to when he was in the womb. We talked a little bit about that this week in Jeremiah chapter 1. God speaking to Jeremiah said, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God had made these plans from the foundation of the earth to call these men in the womb. Now, what that tells me is, I think it's interesting, because a lot of times you can look back on your life, maybe some of you have done this, after you get saved and you can see God's handiwork, you can see his fingerprints upon your life. Even in some of the things that you did, you're not so proud of. Even in some of the things that God allowed you to do or God allowed to happen to you, to prepare you for his calling. That was the case with Paul. I know when he came to Christ that he would say, I count it all rubbish. And he did. I count it all as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. However, God was able to redeem even some of the foolishness and some of the sin and some of the stubbornness and rebellion in which he had operated before he came to Christ. You think about it, right? All of the studying and all of the Judaism and all of the religion made Paul someone who was able to relate with a religious person. Made Paul someone who was able to mix it up and dialogue with Jewish people. He'd have credibility being raised in that. And so he was an effective tool in God's hands to reach people that were caught up in religion, that were caught up in the law, that were caught up in Judaism. 
for sure. Even, I would say, his persecution of the church, though that was not God's highest, not God's highest for anyone to be caught up in sin, but after he persecutes the church and he comes to Christ, he becomes the apostle of grace. And who better to understand and communicate a gospel of grace than someone who was, as he said, the chief of sinners? If he was the chief of sinners, he would better be able to communicate grace than anybody. And nobody communicated grace more than Paul in the scriptures at all. So he becomes this great apostle of grace, and he had been forgiven much. And so as a result, he loved much. He was able to communicate with people and to share, hey, you're not beyond. You're here this morning. You're not beyond the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody is. It's still breathing in and out. And Paul was able to communicate that message to a lost world because of what he had been through us. God called Paul, we're told here, through his grace, verse 16, to reveal his son in me. So not only was Jesus Christ to be revealed to Paul, but Jesus Christ is to be revealed in Paul as well. And the idea there is, look, God wants to reveal Christ to you. And if you already know Christ, he wants to reveal him even more so to you as you walk with him, but he also wants to reveal Christ in you or through you to a lost world. That's what a testimony is. A testimony is that as I walk with God, that God may reveal Christ in me. It's not about me, but it's the world can look at me and go, there's something different about him or her, and there's no other way to explain it except Jesus Christ in them. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are his workmanship. And the word workmanship means that we're like a beautiful poem. We're a work of art. And God, of course, we are his expression to a lost world. We should be like a museum full of paintings that people come by and go, wow, how could that be done? Except that what we're testifying of, his grace, his mercy, his love, he changed me, his Holy Spirit inside of me. In order that... Paul continues here, I might preach him among the Gentiles, which I think is kind of funny. By the way, our God has a sense of humor. Lots of places where you can see it. But here's one, because Paul, Saul of Tarsus, that is, he would have grown up probably despising Gentiles, right? Absolutely. In fact, he was one of those rabbis, you would think, as many of them did, that believed that Gentiles, this is what they taught, that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. And yet here he is, he gets saved, and God says, guess what? I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles. That's kind of funny. And it also speaks to that change in grace inside of someone, where they can hate someone and then go, I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to sacrifice my life, and I'm going to give up my rights, and I'm going to do it for the Gentiles, the people that I once hated. Now, upon his conversion, this is interesting. He says, end of verse 16, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is some valuable insight into the early Christian life of the Apostle Paul that we don't have anywhere else in scriptures. He gets saved in Damascus, and then God takes him out into the desert of Arabia. It says for three years. Rather than connecting with the other apostles in Jerusalem, as you and I would think he would do, God pulls him aside to tutor him one-on-one. -on -one. And people wonder, well, why did God do that in Paul's life for three years? And we don't know for sure, 
But we can speculate and we can go, isn't it interesting that Jesus spent three years with the other 11? And now he takes the Apostle Paul aside before he goes out, before he preaches, before he disciples, and he does some one-on-one instruction with him for three years. I think a lot of times we think that Paul got saved and then boom, he just went right into the mission field. But that's not what happened. And by the way, God wants to do the same thing in your life and in mine as well. He wants to spend time with you, instructing you, revealing himself to you, teaching you his word. The Holy Spirit in the scriptures is known as the teacher. He sends the Holy Spirit into your life to teach you about his word. A lot of times I think you get saved and when you first start walking with God, the tendency sometimes is to completely turn your ear to what man has to say. Now, I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible teacher, I'm for church, I'm not speaking out against church or anything like that, we need to be plugged into a church, but sometimes I think we can get to the point where we want to hear what men have to say, and we never really learn to hear from God, we never really learn uh, to receive God's instruction and to allow Him to teach us in our lives, and I believe that God wants to homeschool His kids, and I don't mean to get up in any controversy about homeschooling or anything like that. I'm simply saying that God wants to school you wherever you are. That God wants to teach you. He doesn't just bring you to church to teach you the Bible, but he teaches you the Bible, his word. He reveals himself to you in those one-on-one times. Three years he did that with Paul. Now consider for a second that three-year period. You consider who Paul was. This brilliant legal mind right we're told about Saul of Tarsus that he was an incredible student Gamaliel said he couldn't keep him in the books wasn't enough and he was able to memorize huge portions of scripture he was just a brilliant guy so he was dedicated to knowing the Old Testament I mean inside and out he knew the whole thing as well as anybody can you imagine, and I know I'm speculating a little bit here, but can you imagine when the light bulb went on and he came to Christ to then go back and read the Old Testament in light of now his conviction that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all things that he had been reading his whole life? That would just, I mean, I don't know about you, I was raised in the church. So I've never known an Old and a New Testament to be independent of each other. And most of us in this room would say the same thing. But Paul studied the Old Testament his whole life. Now he gets to go back and read the Old Testament in light of Jesus' claims. I can only imagine what that would have done to him personally. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1 you read, Let us make man in our image. Did you know it said that? Let us... Make man in our image. Well, the Jews had no understanding of the Trinity back then. In fact, you could go to a synagogue today and you can ask them what this means and they will say this is God communicating or talking to angels. No, because God did not make man in the image of angels and angels were not involved in the creation of man. And so what do we have in Genesis 1? We have a plurality 
of the Godhead, indicative of the Trinity, that would be later more fully presented to us in the New Testament. And then Paul can read this and go, ah, now that makes sense. Jesus claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God. Now this makes sense. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, I get it now. See, and all of a sudden he could turn to Genesis 22 that we looked at on Easter 2014, this past year, when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which runs right through Mount Calvary, Golgotha. Take your only son and offer him up as a sacrifice unto me. A picture of what the father would have to do a few thousand years later in sending Jesus to Calvary. Then maybe another light bulb would go on. Certainly as a student of prophecy that Paul would have been, like many other rabbis, he would have read things like Psalm 22, a messianic prophecy concerning the Messiah, written a thousand years before Jesus is on the scene. Uh, and you read it, and Paul would go back before, he didn't know what to do with it. Now he goes back and he reads, they pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And he could know that all that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it was spoke of about Jesus Christ, not just a thousand years before he was on the scene, but hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. What in the world is David talking about piercing in the hands and the feet of the Messiah hundreds of years before he would even know what crucifixion was? And then Paul now goes, ah, I get it now. It makes sense. And then he would read Isaiah 53. Another messianic prophecy that reads, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then he knew what the stripes were. Ah, the stripes. And we're healed by those stripes. And he was wounded for our iniquities. Now, I don't know if he needed like some Advil or something like that, but his head was bursting at this point in time. He had to hurt his brain to think about all of the different ways. I mean, could you imagine if we could go home tonight and do the same thing? If we could go home tonight and read the Old Testament fresh, not knowing that it had to do with Jesus, and then go through that whole thing, how exciting would that be? And how that would light a fire under us. He's now seeing Jesus on virtually every single page in the Old Testament. But it would take three years for all of that to sink in, for the Lord to instruct him in those ways. But it would take three years for the Apostle Paul to discover what God was trying to communicate to us all along, and that is that salvation by grace through faith is what it's been all along and that nothing has changed and that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament and that salvation by grace through faith is not a New Testament doctrine. It's the Old Testament, it's Bible, it's the whole thing together. God is consistent, he hasn't changed. We're not saved differently in the New Covenant than we were in the Old Covenant. How would that work? How would the Old Testament, how would the saints in the Old Testament be saved if they weren't saved by grace through faith? They saved by the law? I don't think so. They could not have kept the law because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so, without any doubt here, he's seeing from start to finish God's plan unfolding. What an awesome realization for Paul as he went and studied through the scriptures. Maybe keep that in mind next time you read the Old Testament. Just go, wow, what if this was the first time I was opening up my Bible and realizing that Jesus was Messiah? That'd make your devotion a lot of fun, wouldn't it? Well, let me wrap up here as he kind of brings the story to a close after he's saved. Verse 18 says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. 
but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So this is no doubt fascinating passage here as well. That Peter would have, you know, that old crusty fisherman would have sat down with the Hebrew genius scholar and compare stories. Notice the word there, see, in verse 18. It's a word that would be used for like a tourist that's like exploring the area. It's not like he went up to see Peter because he was lacking any instruction in his time in the desert. Peter wasn't going to bring him under his tutelage. They were just fellowshipping. He were just talking about Jesus, no doubt. Can you imagine the things? If you were Paul, now again, you got to picture yourself being Saul of Tarsus, then being Paul, and then you get to go back and spend some time with Peter. What would you ask Peter about? What would you want to know about Jesus Christ? Because he would know, because he walked with him. I just an amazing, I mean, to think about the things that Peter would have, I mean, and we don't know, but the things that Peter might have brought up, you, you should have seen it, Paul. You should have seen when we would confront a demoniac and they would tremble in fear at the sight of Jesus Christ and they knew who he was. You should have seen it. And with a word, they would beg him to jump into swine and be drowned in a lake. We saw him restore sight to the blind. No one had ever done that before. We didn't know that he could do it. I went up atop the Mount of Transfiguration. He peeled back his outer layer. We could see his eternal glory. James and John and I did. You had to have seen it. This was a man, he rebuked the wind and the sea and they obeyed him. Can you imagine seeing that? He said, stop it, and the wind and the rain stopped. Or when Lazarus came hopping out of the grave, or when Jairus' daughter was brought back to life. Can you imagine the stories that Peter could tell to the Apostle Paul? Maybe the best day was when John and I ran to the tomb that Sunday morning, and his body wasn't there, and then we started to believe, truly, in all of his claims. I even remember when I denied the Lord three times. I remember how that crow sounded. That rooster's crow sounded to me after he had predicted I would deny him three times. You feel like you've been an enemy of the church, the enemy of Christ. Well, I denied him three times. I mean, they would have had something in common, a testimony is not just for unbelievers. Testimony oftentimes is between you and I to be shared together to edify and build up the body of Christ. No doubt Paul was built up in these conversations. He spoke with James, says the Lord's brother there, same mom, different dad, right? You get the connection. That was James. Wonder if they talked at all about Jesus' childhood. <laughs> wow, what would have been like to have been raised with a brother that was perfect. <laughs> and just for him to ask him questions about that and, you know, did he ever get blamed for something even though it wasn't his fault? <laughs> did he ever come home from school with a black eye or something like that? What was his favorite activity? Was he a good carpenter, really? Did he ever see a chair or table that he made? Did he know what he was doing? The questions that he could have, I mean, if I could be a fly on the wall for any conversation in human history, it'd probably been that one right there because I want to know what James thought of Jesus Christ. 
Now, no doubt that they thought he was different, but I'm sure he would have said, we didn't know how different he was. At one point, he started claiming to be God, and we went out and, and we grabbed him and said, no, you need to come home. We thought he was losing his mind. And then later on, we would come to believe, I mean, in my defense, you have to understand, no one in history has ever had a brother that was God. So just to, want, I mean, just to think about those kinds of testimonies, the things that would have been shared to Paul, how that would have shaped him. That's why we need to spend time with the Lord as well, learn more about him, that he would infuse in us just an excitement for who he is, and that would come across in how we share him. Let me wrap up here, verse 20. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed, before God I do not lie. Afterward I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. See, because remember, at the end of Acts 9, we're told that when Jesus, or when, when uh, Paul comes to Jerusalem, that most of the apostles, most of the brethren wanted nothing to do with him. Because he was the great threat to the church. You can kind of understand that. Imagine if we were to kind of go back just a few years to when, you know, Osama bin Laden is on the scene. Now you think he comes in here this morning and he walks down the aisle and sits right here. How many of you would be thinking to yourself, oh, this is great, let's have him hear the gospel. Maybe he'll get saved. No, we'd probably be going, what's going on? I mean, what is he doing here? I would hope a few of you would have tackled him before he got up to me. And yet that would have been the same idea for Paul to come on the scene and say, hey, I'm saved now, I'm born again, I want to talk to you, meet with you guys. Yeah, right, that's a trap. Because that was the threat that he would have been to them at that time. So in light of that, you think about the worst person you can ever think of. You think about the greatest persecutor that you could think of of the Christian faith. The greatest antagonist you could think of. And if that person comes to Christ, and by the way, he did, because that's what this story's about, but if in our day that person were to come to Christ, it would bring glory to God. It would bring incredible glory to God. You go, wow, God can do anything. He can save whoever, the worst kind of person. And so that's why it says there at the end of verse 24, and they glorified God in me. <clears throat> and you glorify Paul, and we don't glorify Paul. We glorify God in Paul. And we're able to glorify God in each person's testimony here this morning. By the way, and to wrap up here, to go back to the comment that I was making before. You know, he was in his mother's womb, and he says, you know what, I know that God had called me from way back then. Oh, God knows everything. So before time began, he called you and he called me. And so I just want to close by saying, if you're here this morning, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what trouble you've gotten into. If you've never come to Christ, guess what? God knew all about that, and he can take those things, even your sin, even your rebellion from God, and he can take that, and he can redeem that now, if you give your life to him, for his glory. If you've been distant from God and you've fallen away from God, and you're trying to come back today to God, he can take the mistakes, he can take the wasted time, and he can find a way to redeem that for his glory. 
That's the business that he's in. That's the God that we serve. That's what he does. That's what he did in Paul's life. And he could do it in your life as well. Lord, we do thank you, praise you for that glorious truth. It is a redeeming gospel we believe in. And we've seen it in our own lives and in each other. And Lord, I pray for those that may be here this morning. And maybe they have never made a commitment to you. And Lord, they're being stirred up now. They know that they've fallen short and maybe they've heard a little bit about you or a little bit about your grace. And up until now, they've had a hard time believing it. But God, I pray you'd move on their heart even now as we pray and even now as we worship that you would draw them up front after service by the sovereignty and the power of your spirit, Lord. They know who they are. They know who they are, Lord. If you're speaking to their heart this morning and they need to come forward and get right with you and confess their sin, they need to make a confession of faith to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. The Bible says that they will be saved. That's what your word says, Lord, that it's a simple faith in Jesus Christ. Draw them by your spirit, Lord, this morning, if that's the case. And God, for also for those that may be here that have been just out of fellowship lately with you, have backslid or fallen away for a period of time or just haven't been where they want to be with you. I pray for them as well, God, that if it would be your will to draw them forward for prayer this morning, Lord, just tug on their hearts even now so that they know who they are and that we're not praying this prayer in vain, that you're speaking to them and you desire to have a right relationship with them, to give them a, a clear conscience, clean hands, and pure hearts by your grace, your grace alone. If that be your will as well, you draw them forward as this morning, God. Lord, in all these things, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together. We pray you be glorified in our luncheon today. We thank you for the food, your provision for all of our families. Bless your holy name. Glorify your name. We ask this all in Jesus' name.